Good morning, Christ Church Vienna. My name is Tim Kirby, and I coordinate the children's ministry. Nowadays, that means I'm recording videos and posting them. Um, but today, I am doing our scripture reading, and it's from Revelation 19. Then I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the, all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who, is, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. In Psalm 13, David, the king and psalmist, writes this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? If you've lived any length of life, that is a psalm that you can resonate, that resonates with you. I, I know for me, it has at times been my cry, how long, O oh Lord? For me, especially, I've seen that in walking through cancer with friends and having to bury people before their time. And I've cried out, um, you know, there was a series of deaths that happened at the beginning of our church people that I was close to, so much so that friends of mine who had planted churches said, it's, it's amazing you guys have planted this church um, in the midst of more funerals than most young pastors and church planters do in a decade. And I found myself both angry at death and cancer and fully grief-stricken time and again. And it was a cry, how long, O oh Lord? When will all this end? The longing for God to make things right again. I'm guessing the cry, how long, is also a common one in our culture right now. 
for those of us who are Christians, we look at the cultural hostility, even the trajectory of things. The, you read the news, and you can be filled with worry and fear and this, where is this all going? How long, Lord, before you come back and write all these things? But this is especially a true cry, um, this longing for God to, to, to make things right. How long will you forget me forever? If you've personally dealt with tragedy, or violence, or injustice. You know, I the, the numbers are too great to, to know that people even on this right now have dealt with severe suffering and loss. Um, the numbers of people who have dealt with abuse as a child, sexual, physical abuse, those who have buried children, um, those who've just in this space dealt with extreme hatred and injustices in their life. And that it's a cry. How long, Lord? Are you going to forget me forever? It's the cry of enslaved people around the world today, dealing in suffering and complete powerlessness. If you're, if you're trafficked in the world today, you have no hope. And maybe this Psalm of David matches that cry. How long? How long will you hide your face from me forever? When will it end? Where is justice? Revelation answers that, that by saying that there, there is a judge and there is ultimately a final judgment. And that's why we know there is justice. And so we can have hope even in the midst of a broken and fallen world and the suffering and injustices we've seen and experienced. The imagery of Revelation 19 gives us the imagery of the triumphal entry of Christ into the world, come again to bring his kingdom once and for all. The imagery is this very vivid imagery, as Revelation is known to do, of a rider on a white horse coming with armies, coming to vanquish, to battle and vanquish the enemy, Satan and the Antichrist and all the armies arrayed against him. And it's this very strange and strong imagery of Christ triumphantly returning to this creation. And what we're getting in this is this description of Jesus that's very different than the one who was hanging on the cross at the end of Holy Week. The wording that we get, if you read through the first portion of Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, is a description of Jesus, of the rider, who is faithful and true, it says in verse 11, meaning he is worthy. He is the one who is worthy and right and good. He was worthy to open the scroll. We read about that weeks ago. It says that his name is called the Word of God. That's a description that John used at the beginning of the book of John, uh, his gospel, that was harking back to the creation, that God creates everything with the sound of his voice. And Jesus is the word of God incarnate. And here he is again, the word of God arriving. Jesus is the creator. The writer is the creator of all things, the one who is worthy. He is the source of life. He is the source of all truth. And ultimately, he is king of kings and Lord of lords. The one who is riding in on this horse is God Almighty. And what does he come to do? We get that in these verses as well. He comes, according to verse 11, in righteousness to judge and make war. Now, in the 
Old Testament understanding, righteousness was not just moral perfection. Righteousness actually was described as those who use all of their resources for the good of those who have fewer resources. Righteousness and justice is defined by not exploiting your power and influence for your own good. It's giving it up for the good of others. That's the sort of person or God who is righteous to judge and to make war, not for his own good, but to do so for the good of those who are in front of him. And then it goes on to say in verses 15, in verse 15, this, this more in-depth description of what the writer comes to do. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. What's going on here is in one verse, John is giving us a bunch of Old Testament references. The word of his mouth is going to strike the nations. This is directly from Isaiah 11, the prophecy that the Messiah would judge with the word that comes out of his mouth like a sword that will pierce right and wrong and will destroy people who are outside of God's purposes. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron, John says in Revelation, directly quoting from Psalm 2, the hope that the Messiah, God would come again through the Messiah to rule the nations with a rod of iron. His scepter of of kingship and his gavel of justice would come and then that he would bring the fury of the wrath of god almighty directly quoting from isaiah 63 with this idea of treading the wine press of the wrath of god and god's justice revelation is revealing the rider as the old testament fulfillment of the savior warrior king come to rescue his people, and judge the earth. And then what's described is a battle, a war, a war between the rider and his armies and the beasts or antichrists and their armies. In verses 19 to 21, we see, and the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was seated on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured and with it the false prophet these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was on the horse. The description here is of a battle. The battle is, is lined up between the Antichrist or Antichrists and the kings and nations of the earth. Basically, all the powers and principalities, whether they are people or nations, or powerful entities and systems that have ever been set against God. They're lined up against the rider and his army. And his army is not angels. It's actually based on the description that they're wearing white. It's the faithful, the followers of the lamb. So Christ and faithful followers of Christ are in battle. They're going into battle. And then there's this description, which I didn't read explicitly here, about all the uh, birds of prey coming and eating the carcasses of the dead. And, and uh, when Tim read it, he actually got a little stuck reading it because he was like, this is kind of gross stuff here. And it's a description of vultures coming in and just uh, God inviting them to come in to eat the dead bodies of the enemy. What's going on here? 
What's going on here is more than just uh, grotesque imagery, which John was okay with doing in Revelation. He's actually doing something. He's describing something that a a Hebrew or Greek or Roman uh, culture would have understood as these enemies are not only defeated, they're, they're not given a proper burial, which in an honor and shame culture was final and complete and therefore eternal shame and humiliation. It was, if you were not buried, it was to be cut off from your family and the land, to be forgotten when, in a culture that, that longed for a legacy, to be remembered by their, by their descendants. And, and so and in a culture that valued their ancestors and the land, to just be eaten by the birds means that you were not properly buried. You had complete and utter shame. So it wasn't just defeat. It was the worst possible defeat was going to happen. And then what's described in this whole battle scene is essentially the apocalyptic battle, right? But we have to remember that what John is doing here is using apocalyptic language, which means highly vivid imagery that is symbolic and pointing to revealed truths in order to elicit a response. In other words, this whole battle of Armageddon is not an actual battle like D-Day was a battle. If you're a follower of Christ, you don't need to figure out how to use a sword or drive a tank or fly an Apache helicopter and be ready for some fight that's going to happen. Rather, the description is of a battle, but it's using apocalyptic language, vivid imagery to talk about the conflict between good and evil, between the Lord God Almighty and the forces in this world, the spiritual forces of evil that are pushing against Christ and his followers. And it's an apocalyptic imagery that is underscoring and emphasizing final justice, the defeat of Satan, the defeat of sin, the defeat of all antichrists and all evil throughout the history of humanity, the defeat of all evil, spiritual evil, human evil, systemic evil, and even our own sin and evil. And I think in that sense, What we're meant to do when we read Revelation 19, if we're the sort of people who have cried out, how long, O Lord, we're meant to say, yes, one day Christ is coming and all evil will be defeated, including whatever evil you and I have experienced. But reading Revelation 19 and some of what goes on in Revelation 19 and 20, our modern ears are uncomfortable with a scene of war and judgment. The, the problem is uh, we want justice and we need a judge, but we don't like judges or judgment. But the reason why we need a judge in order to have justice is seen in, in just the history of the world. The problem of violence and revenge is an ongoing cycle that has happened forever. You could go back to the the testimonies of those who have come out of Rwanda or Yugoslavia from the 90s, where one party, one entity had power and exploited it for their own good and oppressed the other. The, The other felt the injustice and responded when they had the chance to turn the power tables into revenge and vengeance. 
And so you saw Hutus and Tutsis that had been friends killing each other. You saw Croatians and Bosnians and Serbs who had been in the same schools killing each other. And the system was this, in order to get justice, you need to get revenge. We see it today if you, if you went to the war in Yemen or what's happening in Ethiopia right now, even the way that things have played out in Syria or South Sudan. Justice needs revenge in the way that we tend to think about it apart from a God of justice. Culturally, we have been in a season of seeking justice for historic injustices. And in many ways, this is a good thing because when there are injustices in our culture, we do need to right those. The challenge is to, to bring justice without a judge means we're left to determine what is right and good and true. And also to not trust that there's ultimate justice, even if I can't get it in my own way here. We're a culture, as, uh, as one writer said, that demands atonement. In other words, you've got to pay for your sins. Our culture now demands atonement, payment for sins, but offers no forgiveness. It's our version of revenge and vengeance. I think we need, and Revelation is telling us, we need a God who is judge. Because of the injustices in this world and the evil we've experienced, because if there is not a judge and a final judgment, we're going to be left to either despair or revenge. If there's no God and there's no judgment, then the only thing left is meaninglessness to your suffering and the evil you've experienced. And the people who have oppressed and done horrible things are just going to get away with it. They lived there 40, 80 years, exploiting and abusing and doing horrid things, and they died and that's it or you've got to get revenge. It's kind of like we, we have this sense, and even if I'm not going to the extremes, okay, let's pull it down from, from places like Yugoslavia and, and Rwanda or modern day wars or, or horrible things that have happened, and just notice how we deal with uh, what we see as injustices. If somebody offends us, we, we want to get them back, and maybe we won't do that explicitly because we're good Christians, right? but we want bad stuff to happen to them. We don't want to be the ones that do it. We just want to sit back and see them fail at something. This is one of the things that happens in marriages when uh, fights occur. Often what happens is we want to make the other person pay. The silent treatment is trying to make the other person pay. It's to get justice for being offended, for an injustice. But what level of justice can you get if you've dealt with severe suffering, if you've been truly offended, if you've been abused, if you've dealt with sexual abuse, if you've dealt with a, a tragic death at somebody else's hands in your own community, what do you do? Without a God of judgment, we have to take it into our own hands. Uh, Yale theologian Miroslav Volf who grew up in Croatia and Yugoslavia talked about this need for a God of justice and judgment and how in the West we have tried to create justice without that. And I'm going to read a longer part of his book from exclusion and embrace his, his book on this. 
And this is what he writes about the need for a God of judgment in order to not respond with revenge. Miroslav Volf writes, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence, not getting revenge, requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular in the West. But he goes on to say, what do you say to people whose cities and villages have been plundered, burned, and leveled to the ground? What do you say to people whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit? You point to them and say, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violent response by us is to insist, insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb to assume that responding with nonviolence comes from the belief in a God who does not judge. In a land soaked with the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the West. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Christianity believes in a God of judgment. Now, that being said, he is the true God, the one who knows truth, that determines what is good and what is evil. And so God's judgment is different than ours. It is eternally and absolutely true and right. God is also seen in scripture and here in our passage as holy, righteous, and just not using his power for his own good, but for the good of creation and all people. And so he is a judge who does and will bring judgment. And ultimately, that's where there is justice. And justice coming one day is what N.T. Wright called the setting to right of all wrongs, when all things will be set to rights. We want and need a judge a final war to put an end to evil and injustice. But Revelation 19 and 20 is an interesting thing because the final battle in Revelation 19 is not an actual battle. It's very, very strange, but the, the battle in Revelation 19 and 20 or Revelation 19, there's not an actual war that's fought. Look at this in Revelation chapter 19 verses 19 through 21. We read, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was seated on the horse. So Satan is behind the Antichrist and all of his armies, and they're gathered to make war against Christ and his armies, the faithful. And then in the very next sentence, the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. And the two were thrown into the lake of fire, and the rest were slain by the sword. The beast and his army and the dragon all line up to fight, but then they don't fight. They don't resist. What's going on? Well, Eugene Peterson says something that we should be aware of too is revelation takes evil seriously, but not too seriously. Satan is a real enemy, but Satan is not as powerful as we often give him credit for being. His defeat does not involve an actual wrestling by Christ. 
And on top of that, verse 13 tells us that his robe is dipped in blood. Christ's robe, the rider's robe, the one who brings war is already covered in blood. Why is it covered in blood if the war hasn't even begun? Why? Because the final battle does not happen on some field in Israel. The final battle is not going to take place 10 years or 1,000 years from now. The final battle took place 2,000 years ago on the cross. The battle took place in Jesus' death on the cross. This is what Paul talks about in Colossians when he says that Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us because of our sins. He set aside all of it by nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities, Satan, and all the powers of evil in this world. He disarmed all of them, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him on the cross. He defeats, triumphs over, and publicly shames Satan, evil, on the cross. It is finished. You know, at the beginning of this service today, we looked at the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem, described in the Palm Sunday liturgy and in the reading out of Matthew 21. What's interesting is Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on a donkey, right? In that day and age, there were two ways for a king to arrive in a city. It was either to arrive on a donkey or on a horse. A king that came in on a donkey was actually coming in in peace. When Solomon was uh, coronated as king, he rode over the same Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey with everyone shouting, Hosanna, son of David. So Jesus is riding into his own city, coming in peace, returning to his own home. If the emperor rode into Rome, he would ride in on a donkey. If he rode into an enemy city that he had just conquered, that had just surrendered, he would ride in on a horse. It's like the difference between riding in a limousine and riding in a tank. At the beginning of the story of Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in on a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna. People saying, Savior, King, save us. You are the Son of David. Come and rescue us. They thought he was coming to do the, the riding in on a horse, coming to destroy the Romans, get rid of the religious leaders. He's come to do what Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 63 and Psalm 2 said. But by the end of the week, he doesn't do that. And they shout, crucify him. And on the cross, Jesus experienced the depth of evil and injustice that this world has to offer. He dealt with violence and injustice. He was, as one preacher put it, lynched. And in that sense, when we look at the king, even the one in Revelation, whose robe is dipped in blood, it is the blood of the cross. And we know that the king that we believe in is one who has suffered. And if you have experienced injustice, or you look at this world and you cry out, how long? The king that we believe in experienced the depth of violence and evil and injustice. He knows. And ultimately, he was judged. He carried the sin and guilt that we deserve, the judgment that we deserve for our own sin. His robe was covered in the blood 
of our own sins so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. It's why in that final battle, Jesus' robe is covered in blood and ours is white. (laughs) This tells us that we have a king who experienced the depth of forsakenness and brokenness and evil in our place. He brought justice by bearing judgment in our place. It is a king who loves us. The king that we believe in is a judge who brings justice. So here's the question. How does the victory, how does the victory of the rider on the horse and his death on the cross shape how we live now? How we respond to evil in this world or evil that we experience? How, how we use our resources, our money, our time, our influence, our status, our talents, how, how we use those for other people? And how we deal with real people in this world, how we deal with difficult people, being forgotten, being neglected, being hurt, being offended. The first thing I would say is this rider on the horse who also died for us tells us we are called to confront evil. He says, it says to us that there is truth. And the rider is the source. Truth is not something we make up on our own. It's not preferences. There is actual truth. There is right and wrong. There is good and evil. And we need to call evil, evil when we see it. And we need to see the need for judgment and justice in this world and work towards that end, fight towards that end, use our resources towards that end in confronting evil, not in cowardliness. The second thing, though, is it tells us how we do it. We carry the cross. We need to die to self. Use our power for others' good, not for our own. Give up our status, our position, our strength for the good of others. Die to self and trust in the one who experienced evil and injustice for us rather than seeking revenge. And that enables us to have hope to endure or to endure with hope, to not despair. We will cry how long in this world and in this life, but we do not need to despair. We have the hope to endure because there is one who is bringing final justice, final judgment. We may not see it today. We may not see it tomorrow. We may not see that final justice in our lifetime. But the one who died and rose again assures us it is it is true. The rider on the horse tells us there is a judge who brings lasting justice. And he is the true king. And he loves us. Let me pray. God, give us eyes to see and hearts to receive, to trust in your kingship and your justice to call evil, evil, to carry our cross and die to self, and to endure with hope. Amen.